You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Welcome to SpyCast, the official podcast of the International Spy Museum. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Each week we explore some aspect of the world of intelligence and espionage, its past, its present, or its future. Coming up next on SpyCast. The primary spies that the Venetians used were the most unexceptional men thrown into the most exceptional of circumstances. Well, in most cases, we don't know who they are. There's just a name and that's it because they were not important. They were primarily banished criminals who offered to become spies just to get a revocation of the banishment and some cash. This week on SpyCast, we journey back to Renaissance Italy. Yes, the time of the art-loving House of Medici in Florence, the dastardly (laughs) Borgia family in Rome, Galileo, Michelangelo, Machiavelli, and of course, Leonardo da Vinci. But we travel there to talk about Venice's secret service. This week's guest makes the case for Venice's secret service to be the first centralised intelligence service in the world something that is traditionally thought to come along around the time of World War I. After many years conducting research in different countries, in different languages, in different fields of study, Joanna sat down with yours truly to speak about her book, and she was a joy to interview. Fun fact, Joanna's path-breaking research has led to no less than two entries in the Guinness World Records book. Look them up. In this episode, we discuss... Renaissance era intelligence tradecraft, the origins of centralized intelligence, the history of secret communications or cryptography, and Venice's importance and position of power in the Mediterranean. A reminder that you can support us for free by A, subscribing to the show, and or B, giving us a five-star podcast review. The original podcast on intelligence since 2006, we are Spycast. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. I'm so happy that we've actually got around to doing this, uh, Joanna, in part just so that I can learn more about uh, Venice's Secret Service because it's something that not a lot of people know about and not a lot of our listeners will know about. So just tell us a little bit more about it. What is Venice's Secret Service? What time period are we talking about? Just give us a primer to get us started. Of course. Thank you very much for having me here, Andrew, first of all. So um, Venice's Secret Service is, I hope, a, ple- a pleasant surprise 
for people who are interested in espionage and intelligence, uh, but who primarily understand what's happening nowadays with spies. So, but as we know, spying existed long before we have all these big narratives about what's happening right now. So Venice's Secret Service is what I claim in my book is probably, if not the earliest, one of the earliest centrally organized state intelligence organizations that matured around the 16th century. So we're looking around 1600s, basically. And and what we see in that period is, of course, we see spies everywhere. But what we don't see is centrally organized secret services. So the Renaissance Venice was one of the earliest states to have, have created this organization that, that operated across primarily Europe, but also Northern Africa and sort of the Near East, where contemporary Turkey is. And the conventional understanding is that centralised intelligence comes along around the First World War period. So I know that in the UK, before World War I, there's a big spy scare. There's hysteria about Germany and growing German power. And 1909, you have the forerunner of MI6 and MI5 come along. So, so that's been the traditional argument. But you're saying, actually, we have to jump back a few centuries to Venice. We do, yes. I mean, what makes things a lot a lot more complex is, of course, in the 16th century, the technology we had um, is nothing like what we had in the in the 20th century. Um, and this is one of the reasons why political historians, diplomatic historians, even organizational historians have, in a way, neglected what happened before the 19th and the 20th century. But if we consider that the main technology of the 16th century was correspondence, so writing of letters, this is how things were organised and managed. And of course, there's other things that hopefully we'll discuss here. Yes, indeed, there is clear proof that we do have a centrally organised secret service in the 16th century by the Venetians, stationed, sort of housed in the Doge's Palace at the centre of, 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 of Venice and operating from there. One thing that I found quite fascinating in your book was that the Venetians were really meticulous record keepers, weren't they? They really systematised all of their correspondence, uh, all of the the paperwork of state, and that's one of the reasons why you were able to write the book. Could you just tell us a, a little bit more about that? Yes, indeed. So w- what we have in what we call the early modern period, so late medieval and early modern period from, I would say, the, fifth, the 14th century onwards, we do have the creation of what we call central chanceries, which is basically central state archives all across early modern Europe. This is not just a Venetian phenomenon. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have the development of diplomacy and by extension state formation. So the moment you develop a state uh, and you start developing diplomatic links with other states, you need to somehow keep a record of documents. The Venetians were indeed, they they sort of, they they created a a central chancery, so a state sort of uh, what currently is state archive, so a central archive. But within that archive, they created what they call the secreta, that is the secret archive, which again was not just exclusive to Venice. Other states like Papal Rome also had one of those, um, where they created all their intelligence documents, all their espionage relevant, you know, secrecy, official state secrecy relevant documents. And I was very lucky in the sense that these have, have been preserved because I mentioned before that the main technology of the period was correspondence. So in order for an, a, a diplomatic or intelligence order to leave the Doge's palace to go to a state representative of Venice or a spy, 
let's say, in the Ottoman Empire, in Turkey. The Ottoman Empire were the, the perennial enemy of, of the Venetians. Um, you needed to send it via letter, but because, of course, postal routes at the time were not safe at all, uh, not only that these letters would be sent through different routes, but they would be sent to different addressees, advising them to send them to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, at, the, at least uh, until it reached the actual nominal addressee of, of the epistle. So we have several copies of the same letters, a lot of them in cipher, but they also have been deciphered by the actual contemporary secretaries. Uh, and this is where I got lucky, because all this archive has been preserved uh, it has been because it was it was stored in very safe, secret places. It wasn't burnt during uh, different fires that um, um, that were set in in the Doge's palace. So all these documents exist, and that's how I could find the documents uh, and write the book. And, and I assume that uh, when the Venetian Republic was at its height, I'm, I'm assuming that it was very very difficult to get into the secret archive. H- how was the access controlled? Yes, that's a very good question. In theory, it was. In practice, there are rumors that a lot of people could just enter there. By people, what I mean is, that, I mean, obviously, there, there was a class system in 16th century Venice, and the people who could access the Doge's Palace were the nobility, uh, who were the, the ruling class. So Venice was not a monarchy, there was not a king, there was a Doge who, was, who wouldn't take any political decisions. He was a ceremonial figurehead. But Venice was run by different governmental committees, through a voting system. So they would reach a majority, then they would pass on a law, and that's how decisions were made. So it was a, a form of oligarchy. A lot of these noblemen could access the archive because most of them were diplomats. Most of them were sent on diplomatic missions overseas as usually ambassadors, in which case they had to act as some kind of intelligence gatherer or spy. And in order for them to get informed about anything relevant to the courts, um, they had to go and serve the republic they were granted access to the the archive, the secret archive. Similarly, official historians were also uh, granted access because, I think I mentioned before, the archive was weaponized as a sort of propaganda. So the the governmental committee of the Council of Ten, who were the spy chiefs of the Renaissance Venice, were very, very keen to ensure that their their image as, as the rulers of Venice was preserved in the way they wanted it to be preserved throughout the centuries. There's a lot of legends and myths around the archive and the fact that, for example, the the guard um, was not allowed to be literate so that he wouldn't be able to read. Um, I haven't found any evidence of that. But in theory, you could have, on average, about 100 noblemen going in and out every day. Uh, in practice, of course, uh, it was only members of the ruling class that were allowed to 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 enter and use the documents. So someone that's illiterate, that's almost like the same idea behind having a unit core, uh, but this time, instead of being castrated, you were you could read the documents, so therefore you were less of a threat in the same way that a eunuch was less of a threat. Um, that's, that's really interesting. For our listeners, could you give us just an example of Venetian intelligence in action? Maybe it's a particular um, event or um, a particular relationship or something, but give us a just a little story within your book that helps to highlight for our listeners what Venetian intelligence was all about? So uh, there's so many different examples, but I will focus a little bit on this. So there are different types of what we call spies and, and, you know, we may discuss this later, but there is no professional spy in the 16th century. But as I said before, ambassadors 
Venetian ambassadors serving in foreign courts, because I said it, it, we've got the beginning of diplomatic encounters in the sort of 14th century. So eventually we start having residence embassies everywhere in Europe. And at the time, diplomacy and, and intelligence, as probably even now, they're, they're very sort of heavily intertwined. And, and something else I need to say is at that particular point in time, the word spying or espionage carried very negative connotations. Okay, so it was a contemptible act. So um, people like ambassadors were not expected to be spies because that's a bad thing. It's only what the enemy does, not what we do. But of course, spies were, sorry, ambassadors had to be intelligence gatherers. So when they couldn't spy themselves, they would bribe other people to spy for them or pay them. And usually what they would do is they would befriend um, senior figures in different courts and pay them, not in money, because it was beneath these senior individuals to get money, but in, in, in kind. And there is a very interesting case of the Venetian ambassador in the Spanish courts, and that's sort of late 16th century, 1580s, I think it was, um, who sends uh, a letter in cipher back to the Venetian espionage headquarters and says, I managed to befriend Antonio Perez, who was the Secretary of State for Philip II, so the, the, the King of Spain. And he's giving me some very interesting intelligence, but he wants to be paid in paintings of Titians. Okay, um, so wow. that was quite interesting. So <laughs> the first time the Venetian Council of Ten paid Titian 200, I mean, obviously Titian wasn't the huge name that he is right now. He was a very skilled artisan, but still his work was quite valuable. So they paid 200 ducats to buy a painting of his, um, which they sent to the ambassador to give to uh, Antonio Perez. And I don't know what kind of information he gave all the intelligence he gave, but um, it was so good that eventually the Venetians had to disperse another five hundred pounds for a couple more paintings. So that was one of the many sort of interesting stories about how the Venetians operated. There's always a quid pro quo and element because the Venetians were first and foremost traders. They were businessmen. They would pay for everything. That was the whole point. We exchange services and we pay for the services. So that's one of the interesting examples. I've got several more to share. <laughs> could, could you give us another one? Because that's really interesting, especially the Titians. Yeah, the Titians. Yeah, and and unfortunately, I mean, there's some debate from our historians trying to understand what were these paintings, because surely they exist. So it's very difficult to understand the provenance because paintings travel so much throughout the early modern period. So this is one. I'll give you a couple more, right? So I gave you an example of a of a of, of a nobleman who acted as a, as as a as a spy, that is an ambassador, or at least as an informer. The primary spies that the Venetians used were the most unexceptional men thrown into the most exceptional of circumstances. Well, in most cases, we don't know who they are. There's just a name and that's it because they were not important. They were primarily banished criminals who offered to become spies just to get a revocation of the banishment and some cash. But there was a case, for example, in, in, in the documents that I mentioned in the book of a particular guy called Joseph from Cyprus whom the Venetians wanted to send, well, they did send to Constantinople, to the Ottoman Empire, to spy on the, on the Turks. And apparently they gave him very strict instructions as to how he would pass as a spy. So um, they gave him what they call a pezza incerata, which means a piece of cloth, um, which would be covered in wax to make it waterproof. In that piece of cloth, he would hide uh, a letter that had to be delivered to the Venetian ambassador in Constantinople, who at the time was under house arrest. And he had to stitch up that letter inside his clothes. They don't, they don't mention which piece of clothing, but I assume it's some kind of cape or coat. 
and that way walk towards the Venetian embassy in Constantinople, wait uh, under the window of the ambassador to give him the letter and then do the same thing and take it back. And again, it's a simple thing, but the fact that they even considered sort of waxing it in order to save it from from water, it, it was just quite fascinating. And do any examples of this exist? Do you know? No, it was just that what we do have in the documents is the detailed instructions. I think this is the most interesting thing. In most cases, we don't even have names of the spies. So there's no material example. Um, on many cases, a lot of the Venetian spies that were sent to primarily the Ottoman Empire would pass as um, textile merchants because the Venetians were so were operating, they had mastered the textile trade at the time. So a lot of them were expected to just carry these big bolts of fabric with them, just basically pretending to be merchants, just trading in Constantinople. On several occasions, they made up individuals. So a particular spy called, it's, I think it's the spy that we've got most information on, Giovanni Antonio Baratta. He was sent again to spy on the, on, on the Turks um, just before the Venetians lost Cyprus, which was one of the most prized possessions in the Mediterranean. So that's the 1570s, just before a big plague hit. And he was supposed to pass as a, as a merchant, as a, as a textile merchant. And they, they told him that what he had to do, uh, they told him that his new identity, he was, he was called Ottavio Pesaro. And he was the brother of another peasant who lived in Paris, who was a textile merchant. So he had to send all his letters with all the secret information to Paris, to the particular textile merchant who existed in Paris. So they knew about him and they used his name. But what happened was all the postal rules from the east, all the routes from Turkey would pass from Venice. So the Council of Ten knew that the moment that letter arrived for the peasant merchant in Paris, they would take it open it and read all the information. So it was they were quite savvy. For us, it looks a little bit premature, primitive what they were doing. But the informational value of reading that, I think, is, is, quite, is quite high. Wow, that's pretty incredible. So in, in the book, you say that the main uh, agents of collecting information would be diplomats or government officials, merchants, or the other one, which is quite interesting, is seamen, sea captains, uh, and I know that that's how your research on Venice uh, originated. Could you tell us a little bit more about them as people that are collecting information? Yeah, so so Venice was a centre of information in the 16th century in two ways. They, um, the printing industry flourished in Venice. So they did, uh, obviously, a lot of the printing houses were based in Venice. In fact, I have a case, in, I mentioned a case in the book where a particular book that was published not in Venice, but in the Veneto area caused so much controversy that the Venetian uh, spy chiefs asked the, the local police to go and literally burn the printing press so that they wouldn't print again. So you have the printing press, but also you have the, the expansion of news through pamphlets and newspapers, which again started in Venice. So the Venetians were very seasoned with exchanging news ideas. And of course, Venice was sort of the center between the communication center between the East and the West. So Venetian seamen, captains, sailors were expected to actually collect any kind of relevant information or intelligence throughout their travels and report it back to Venice, either when they arrived back or through letters, writing letters to the authorities. So actually this, this research originated because 
my PhD was on um, the Venetian shipbuilders and sailors of Venice. And I found this body of documents where a lot of the shipbuilders had to work on board ships um, around the Mediterranean. So they would return back to Venice and they would go to um, the, the, the area where all their Venetian notaries worked and they would report that a lot of Venetian subjects were tortured by the Turks. So they would say, you know, this person whom we haven't seen in two years and is missing, well, he's been captured by the Ottomans. They cut off his tongue. They forced him to convert to, uh, to, to Islam. They cut off his ha- arms and legs. It's quite gruesome. And that's how I started getting interested because I thought, why, is, why are these people wasting time of their working day to go to the Doge's palace and report all these things? It's like they're spying on the Ottomans. So all the captains, except the fact that they were expected to transport spies all around, the the government would give orders, whatever they heard that was relevant um, for the, you know, for the Venetian government, they would have to report. In fact, one of the most prominent historians of of, um, the Renaissance period, Jacob Burkhardt, wrote that every Venetian away from home was a spy for his government. So everyone who was traveling overseas, either tradesmen or captains or sailors were expected to collect information and report it back. Wow. Unfortunately, though, we don't have a lot of letters left from them because the information was just not stored in the secret archive. And help us understand the organisation of all of this because your argument in the book that it's centralised intelligence, it's not in other countries, there's a small group of people that may be acting on behalf of the sovereign, but... When they die, there's there's no bureaucratic transfer of responsibilities to the next person. So it's not centralised and bureaucratised. So help us understand how that all came together. Uh, tell us about the Council of Ten. Tell us a little bit more about the Doge. H- how is Venice organised and structured and what role does the Council of Ten play in all of this information landscape? So as I said before, Venice was an oligarchy. It was ruled by several governmental committee that were uh, committees that were um, sort of composed by the Venetian ruling class, the Venetian nobility, and these were all men, of course. And ju- ju- just just very briefly on that, was it a closed system? Could you pull yourself up by the bootstraps and become one of the people that's on no, the Council of Ten? Or not. it was a closed system? You were no, either most born into it or not. Okay. You okay. were born within the nobility. There was something called the Libro d'Oro, the Golden Book, where Venetian families were registered. So you, even if you were an extremely wealthy member, uh, sorry, um, a man or merchant, if you were not born in formally in the Venetian nobility, you cannot be part of the ruling class. Okay. 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 And and this is a, a very important characteristic of of the Venetian um, society that that actually all the, well, the, the great majority of the noblemen were actually merchants as well, as well. And understanding the business acumen is really important in, order, important in order to understand early modern Venice. So there were different governmental committees, all of them made up by Venetian noblemen, one of which, and one of the most exclusive, was called the Council of Ten, which, just to confuse people, was made up not of ten, but of 17 members. Ten ordinary members who only had voting rights, so for every decision they would vote and they needed to reach a majority in order for that decision to be taken and then be converted into a decree or regulation or law. Um, six ducal councillors that were there, they didn't have any voting rights. They were there sort of refereeing figures. And then also the doge. But again, he was just a ceremonial figurehead and nothing more than that. So these 10 members out of the 17 would, were basically the spy chiefs. They were responsible for the domestic and foreign security of Renaissance Venice and by extension, of course, Venice's intelligence operations. 
and they acted more or less as the, the, the spy leaders or spy chiefs or sort of the managers of the whole intelligence organization. The reason why I called it intelligence organization is two things. The one is there's a very specific organization hierarchy. So you've got the Council of Ten who then manage all the other informers um, who are the diplomats, who are always members of the nobility, who are expected to act as informers or spies. Then all these merchants, seamen, uh, but also all the ordinary spies that the Venetians employed. So they managed all these people. And then they also managed the bureaucracy of intelligence. So the state secretaries, who are responsible for transcribing let- letters, uh, collecting letters, creating all the secret archive, but also the state cryptographers, who were based in the Doge's Palace, because Venice was one of the first states to have cre- created a, a central cryptography department again in the 16th century. So they managed all these people, and they managed them through letters, which is very interesting because if you think about it, it, it takes about a month for a letter to reach the Ottoman Empire and another month for the decision for the reply to come back. If you want to send a letter to Japan at that point in time, it's two and a half years to get there, two and a half years. Wow. So imagine having to dismiss somebody, right? So that was the technology. But the second element, which is really important, the authority of the 10 stemmed from decrees, rules and regulations. They couldn't just wake up one day and just order something, right? They couldn't make an order. Everything they actually ordered and instructed and expected was the outcome of a regulation. And this is where the whole point of an organization comes in. So they managed everything. And also there's this notion of accounting for everything they requested of their different, their different underlings everywhere around, as I said, Europe, Northern Africa and, and sort of the Near East, they expected at least one written report that is an account. So again, that's where the notion of accounting comes in. Um, we don't see this as much in other early modern, uh, modern European states, but we have to be a little bit careful. Um, there is evidence that in states like in that period, so 16th century like France or England, indeed you do not have this centralised intelligence. What you do have is very strong intelligence networks that were employed either by the monarch or by the monarch's rivals. However, a lot of the early modern states have not been studied yet, either because people haven't delved into the, the, the documents or maybe because the documents don't exist. So that's why I'm saying I'm not, there's not such thing as Venetian exceptionalism. The reason why the, the case of Venice is, is so prominent is because the documents are there. In fact, I, I, I am suspicious that same period Florence, Ferdinand the Medici's Florence is very much similar um, as Venice. Joanna and I spoke at length about some events that happened during this period that ended up on the cutting room floor, but which I think will be useful for listeners to hear in a more condensed form in order to help them understand the episode at a deeper level. 1. This period sees the invention of the printing press around 1440 by the German Johannes Gutenberg. Just think about this for a second. If the Renaissance was in one sense about rediscovering knowledge from the ancient world, then imagine how much more widely this knowledge could now be shared. From a few pages by hand copying to thousands of pages per day, the printing revolution had begun, ushering in increases in literacy, the widespread dissemination of knowledge, and Venice becoming the book printing capital of Europe 
by the end of the 15th century. Two, sustained contact between the old world and the new precipitated by Columbus's 1492 expedition. Again, Italy played an important role. Columbus was from Genoa, and Amerigo Vespucci, from whom we get the term America, was from Florence. Nevertheless, Ioana points out that for the Venetians, this was much less important than the Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Diaz becoming the first European to round the Cape of Good Hope. Why? Firstly, it opened up the sea route to India, which on the one hand provided economic opportunities for the mercantile Venetians, but it also opened up a new threat, for the Portuguese were much better placed geographically to take advantage of this route, which is partly why Angola, on the west-central coast of southern Africa, and Mozambique, in southeastern Africa, are part of the Portuguese-speaking world. Stay tuned, for in the next interlude, we'll round, round this off by talking about a third major event that happens during this period. We'll be right back after this. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's it's like history is not what happened in the past, it's just what records exist that tell us what happened in the past, uh, which is something very different. Let's just back up for a second. So the Council of Ten, so they're making, that's the premier decision-making body for the Republic of Venice. It doesn't matter what the topic is. It's, they're, they're not just there for espionage and, and state security. Is that correct? Yes. So they end up having nearly exclusive power of Venetian politics by the beginning of the 15th century, because they started us primarily focusing on domestic and foreign security. So anything security related was their jurisdiction. Um, it's the Senate that makes, which is the, main, the primary legislative organ of the Venetian government. But the Council of Ten end up taking nearly all the power. And by late 16th century, their power has subsided. But the problem is that anything related to Venetian politics or Venetian economy is state security because the Venetians, well, Venice is, is primarily a maritime and trade empire. So anything that threatens economic is a matter of state security. The other interesting thing is by 1539, the 10 and by extension Venice, that they're so obsessed with state secrecy and, and with actually legislating enormously around state secrecy that they create a, a formal counterintelligence magistracy. So you do have a formal counterintelligence body there called the Inquisitors of the State. And this is not the Venetian Inquisition. This is something different. So they do basically assume power around everything around Venetian politics and, and economy by the beginning of the 16th century, so 1500s. And, and how would a decision be made by the Council of Ten? So let's say the Council of Ten are some decision comes in, uh, there's actually 17 of them. Do you have an example of uh, a key decision that they all had to make and, and how it all shook out? Yeah, and basically every single decision was recorded. And this is, again, the evidence I had to, to write the book. For every decision, they would have to have an assembly. So it'd be a meeting, basically, where they would talk about the pros and the cons of a decision. And then they had to vote. They needed, I think, a two-third majority to make a decision. 
So it could be anything. Just to give you an interesting example, the Venetians were masters at letter interception. They're absolute masters. This is how they survived. Again, as I mentioned before, the postal routes at the time in the 16th century all around Europe were controlled by the Venetians. So if you wanted to send a letter from, I don't know, England or from um, the Ottoman Empire to the other side of Europe, it had to pass through Venice, right? So they were, they were masters of intercepting letters, opening them, reading them, and then resealing them. And they, they became very good by late 16th century in creating counterfeit seals. So you have a particular individual called uh, Celio Malespini, who is a novelist, that's late 16th century. And he, he basically had created a name for himself um, for um, being able to forge different signatures. So he sends a petition to the Council of Ten saying, I've got this skill. How about I create these bogus ciphers because we know other states try to intercept letters. So I create these bogus ciphers basically to um, to deceive our enemy. So they would receive these bogus ciphers, but because they were phony, they wouldn't be able to understand what they say. So we throw them off the scent, right? And he even, you know, said, uh, I'm very good with Latin and Latin originating languages, like such as Italian and Spanish and French. I can write in those, it's not a problem. Um, but if you give me an interpreter, I can do the same for Greek, German, Hebrew, Slavic, Turkish. So. Um, and yeah, exactly. And he requested 800 ducats per year, which is a colossal amount of money. If you consider that the most senior cryptanalysts who had 20 or 30 years experience would be paid about 100 to 120 ducats a year. So what we have in the documents is the voting system. And initially they considered they, they voted, yes, let's employ this guy. But eventually they voted it down. And it doesn't say in the document whether they did it because the, the, the sum he was asking was astronomical or whether they realized he can't do that. He, he's just bluffing here. So for every single thing they wanted to decide, from choosing one spy to sending that spy to either Spain or the Ottoman Empire, you do have the record of when they met, what they discussed and how they voted for it. I want to go on to discuss more about the tradecraft and uh, some of the organisation of intelligence in uh, the Republic of Venice, but I feel like it would be quite good at this point just to help give them an understanding of what the Republic of Venice was and what it was all about. So if you could just help me out here, what dates are we talking about? When does the Republic of Venice come into existence and when does it go out of existence? Oh, it's just, just it's ballpark. quite a lengthy it's quite a lengthy period. So <laughs> so so we have from the the Fourth Crusade, twelve oh four, and the Republic of Venice dies in seventeen eighty nine when Napoleon walks in, marches in, and 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 basically takes takes over. But the the rise of the intelligence service is, uh, is, it starts sort of, I'm pretty sure it starts in around the 14th century, but unfortunately the documents are more detailed starting in the 16th century, so 1500s. So it doesn't mean it didn't exist before, but we don't have much before in, in recorded before the 1600s. And when we talk about the Republic of Venice, we don't just talk about the island of Venice. The Republic of Venice was made up of a great part of Northern Italy sort of the, the, uh, the uh, Balkan Peninsula, so where the Balkans are today, so former, you know, Yugoslavia and Croatia and, and, and all these different states, all the way down the Adriatic to a great part of what is contemporary Greece. And the reason why that was a very, very important geographical, it was actually a geostrategic position, is, is that the trade from the east, particularly spices and silk from the east, was taken advantage of was uh, but by the Venetians. So the Venetians would 
trade with all the Eastern merchants. They would bring all the products in Europe and then um, and then take them, uh, send them all to Central and Northern Europe. So the Venetians were controlling the, the trade from the East to the West until sort of the mid 15th century when the basically the Venetian Republic starts declining. And they also for a period of time are in control of Crete and Cyprus and Corfu and Zakynthos. Yeah, it's it's kind of fascinating. It's almost this chain that goes from Venice all the way through to the Eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, and indeed if you if you I mean if you like me you understand Greek because of course it's my mother tongue and you speak to people from um, Xantis or Zakynthos or, or Crete or Rhodes or even Corfu, they've got a very melodic way of speaking, which sounds very much like Italian oh, really? intonation. Wow. So you see, yes, yeah, so no, there are a lot of remnants there mm-hmm. as well. But particularly Crete and Cyprus, I mean, Crete was really important for the current and the wine trade. And Cyprus was basically the entry to Europe from the east. And this is where losing Cyprus in 157, in the early 1571-73, that's the War of Cyprus, or, the, or what we call the Fourth Ottoman-Venetian War, was really detrimental to the Republic of Venice. After that, the, the, the Republic declines mm-hmm. quite uh, quite quickly. And it's quite interesting because this whole area of the, the Mediterranean, the Adriatic, seagoing and seafaring is a way of life for them, right? Uh, a couple of examples. One is Homer. He's from one of these islands in the in this this part of the world. And also, my wife's grandfather is from a small Croatian island called Unia, uh, and he he's basically a fish. He was born born to the water. But this is just a way of life for people in that region, right? Yeah, and it was it was like that then. I mean, and again, if you if you read this, the communication between the Council of Ten and and the Venetian governors in all these areas, especially around the Balkans and the Adriatic, it, it's just, you know, that they're expected these people to monitor the whole harbour just to see if, you know, spies are coming in and out. You're thinking, how on earth are you doing it? But that was part of who they were. They, they lived and breathed, you know, that harbour and that sort of sea life, which was so important. And of course, they knew everyone uh, at that point in time because communities were a lot more um, smaller, but also close-knit. And for this uh, period as well, so in the title of your book, it talks about organising intelligence in the Renaissance. So just a, a brief reminder or primer for our audience, what's the Renaissance? I, th- I feel like most people have a fuzzy idea of what it was, but you're a, you're a scholar of it. So t- tell us what the Renaissance was. That's, that's because as scholars, it's a very complex question, right? Um, for a lot of scholars, Renaissance is considered to be, um, this cultural movement that somehow started in, you know, there are different, the different starting points depending on, on the school of thought, let's say 13th, 14th century, um, where a lot of, uh, Again, prominent men, usually primarily in Italy, Florence, and they, they, they went back and started rereading the ancient Greek philosophers and Latin philosophers and scholars. And then that's where sort of Renaissance arts like painting and, and sculpture flourished and so on and so forth. So, so that's, that's one view of, of Renaissance. But we also talk about Renaissance in, 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 um, in, in terms of a historical period. And this is more or less how I use it in the book. So it's a historical period from sort of 14, mid 15th century to, I mean, I would say the 16th, 30s. That's where I have it in the book, which coincides with the early modern periods where we're not just talking about cultural 
um, revival, but we're talking about a focus in, in socioeconomic standards and understanding how people lived and thought um, and how they interacted with each other. And this is more or less how, how I see it in the book. I see it more as I was challenged uh, with, with this question during my my doctoral viva, actually, my doctoral examination, but, but I, I see it like that. And that's why I placed um, even six, some scholars say 16th century is not the Renaissance. And I say, no, it absolutely is because people are still informed by all these new ideas and, and, and we understand a lot more. So if you think of cryptography, a lot of the cryptography, the Venetian cryptographers, a lot of the intellectual underpinning of their work in the 16th century very much goes back to the Renaissance period, which is really important to consider. And the Renaissance also takes place north of the Alps, right? It's not just an yeah. Italian oh, yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not at all. Uh, again, there are different schools of thought, and, and a lot of scholars say it started in Italy, but absolutely, and there are different terminologies around, you know, northern the Renaissance and, the, and so on and so forth, but it happened everywhere in Europe. The other major event during this period that Joanna and I spoke about was three the fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks on May the 29th, 1453. An event of genuine world significance. Why? Well, let's take a step back first. Rome, the tradition goes, was founded in 753 BC by Romulus and Remus. It became a republic in 509 BC with the overthrow of the last king, an empire in 27 BC with the accession of Augustus as the first emperor, and then it moved its capital to New Rome, later named Constantinople, in honour of the emperor who made the move, in 300 AD. In 390 AD, it was split into the Eastern and Western empires, headquartered in Constantinople and Rome respectively. And this is where the story gets interesting. The Western Empire survives for not too much longer, Traditionally, it is seen as coming to an end in 476 AD with the overthrow of Romulus Augustulus, the last emperor in the West. What is less well known, but of tremendous importance, is that the Eastern Empire lives on for another thousand years. Yes, a mere tiny millennium. That is until 1453. The fall of Constantinople changed the nature of the relationship between Christianity and Islam around the Mediterranean Sea, and it was integral to the rise of the Ottoman Empire, which went on to conquer Egypt, the Holy Land, Syria, Mesopotamia, the Arabian Peninsula, the Balkans, and Greece. It was important for the Venetians because this empire would eventually encroach on its own Mediterranean possessions, such as Cyprus and Crete, but in the shorter term, it led to a large exodus of Greeks who would contribute mightily to the Italian Renaissance, and many of whom would end up in, yes, you've guessed it, Venice. For those of us who live in the Western Hemisphere, the fall of Constantinople is also important because it played a key role in the European age of exploration. Because now, the overland trade routes between East and West, which ran through the city, were broken. Fun fact, Rome was founded by Romulus and its last emperor was Romulus Augustulus, while Constantinople was founded by Constantine the Great and its last emperor was Constantine XI. Coincidence? 
Some people don't think so. So just just jumping forward, Joanna, um, let's try to just dig into a little bit more of Venetian intelligence. So so they have what's essentially foreign intelligence gathering. Do they have some of the other things that we think about when we think about centralized intelligence? Do they have uh, a counterintelligence capability? Like how are they protecting their own secrets? Um, how are they, you know, do they have a, a, a sort of FBI MI5 that's, that's working within the Republic of Venice to protect the domestic part of the whole uh, enterprise? Do they, do they even have covert action? Do they have these other types of things that we think about? So just, just round out the story of Venetian intelligence for us. Yes. So the, the primary functions of that, of the Venetian Secret Service is, of course, intelligence ga- gathering counterintelligence, um, cryptography, steganography, cryptanalysis, all happening in-house, and also the uh, in-house production of, of um, poisons for the enemy. COVID action, I, I am always a little, much as I use the phrase in the book, and you can have samples of that, but I'm a bit reluctant to use it because it's not exactly what we mean by COVID action in contemporary terms because of lack of technology. Um, but primarily, you know, your pure espionage or intelligence gathering, um, these sort of covert operations and counterintelligence that formalized or sort of enshrined in legislation is just a very primitive. So um, just just briefly start from counterintelligence um, and uh, sort of the protection of, of state secrets. This, again, is formalized by the um, introduction of the, the, the Inquisitori di Stato, the state inquisitors in 1539. And... What we've got is a string of regulations around the protection of state secrecy, and they're very strict, and they keep being uh, they keep being uh, revisited uh, and amended every few years. And they're so strict that even if you are a member of the ten or of the nobility and you break these rules, um, you either lose all your political rights and your property, or you're even threatened with a uh, death penalty. Okay, and, and again, it's very clear to see that function of the Venetian Secret Service with regards to I- intelligence. But again, we do not have professional spying at that particular point in time. In fact, we, we we've got spying. We don't have professional spies. There's no sense of professionalization the way sociologists have talked about professionalization. So you don't have people who've got this sort of sense of uh, of, of professional identity or um, sort of um, a, an appeal to expertise or reliance or theoretical knowledge around espionage. You don't even have gadget and gizmos, you know, you, you just have these these minor things that I mentioned, like using wax or different, different, different things. But and most certainly there's not that sense of fellowship or pride that other professions have created, like the shipbuilders or the glassmakers or um, indeed the, 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 the Venetian cipher secretaries. You do not have that. But they employ spies everywhere. And spies are generally everywhere employed by all the different states, not, not, not the Venetians. Uh, and as I said before, they've got a very well fun- functioning, um, cryptography department. So the cryptology, so it's cryptography and cryptanalysis. Lots of, uh, engagement with, um, the production of invisible ink. Um, and, 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 and a, a very good training school of cryptologists or, or of uh, cryptographers as well. 
Tell us a little bit more about that training skill. I was actually, that was one of my questions. Is it on the job training? Is it a formalized course? Or yeah, help us understand it that. Is, it is, yes, it is training development specifically for the state cryptology department. So the Venetians were scouting for talent, but usually these, these uh, white collar positions, um, such as being a state secretary or in any legal sort of capacity serving the state, and indeed cryptography uh, and cryptanalysis, these were saved um, for the descendants of uh, of current secretaries, um, because primarily because Venice was constantly involved with wars with the Turks at that particular point in time. Sometimes they couldn't pay in cash, so they paid again in benefits. So whenever they would scout talent, they would sort of recruit them from, recruit them from a very early age. They would get them trained within the Doge's Palace. So the most experienced members of staff, the most experienced cryptologists were expected to produce cryptography manuals. And of course, there were several by different philosophers of the, um, of the, um, of the Renaissance period anyway that they were using. And they were expected to go through training, most certainly at the beginning of their career but also to refresh the training every few years. And that would lead to a promotion, which would then lead to an increase in their salary. So, and all of that was very much organized and orchestrated by the Council of Ten. They oversaw all that process, um, which again was very interesting. And again, the good thing is we've got evidence of that because it's been recorded and it's there. What's the interaction like with England at this period? And you know, Sir Francis Walsingham is often called the father of English espionage and mm-hmm. uh, his uh, cryptanalyst was, is quite well known amongst people that study England in this period. So is there any kind of crossover there? I know there are quite different types of intelligence yeah. setups, but I was just wondering if there's any interaction. And of course, during this period, we have the Merchant of Venice. So yeah, just help us understand that link. Yeah, and there's a lot of myth around, you know, did did Shakespeare actually go to Venice or and so on and so forth. There's interactions all the time. I mean, one of the things, you know, going back to talking about the lack of professionalization of spying is because of that, spying was, um, spies were mercenaries, right? You know, they would go where the money went. So, so they would be easily double spies or they would have different paymasters. Um, so there is, there is communication there. I know that there's a lot of things that the, that the English tried to emulate because the Venetians were quite famous about their organization. I know that similarly with Philip II of Spain, just like with Elizabeth I, they, they were aware of theoretically the, the Venetian superiority when it came to, it came to intelligence organization. They tried to emulate it. And there were indeed certain people who you find in England and in Venice more or less at the same time. And they, I'm pretty sure they work for potentially Wolsingham or the Council of Ten at the same time. That, that, that's quite common. Um, again, news and gossip traveled, traveled fairly quickly. But most of the information, I would say, again, there's debate, you know, what do you call intelligence at the time? What do you call information was also transferred by merchants. And that was what I said before, that capacity to act as an informer because you were serving either your state, that is England, or your state, that is, uh, that is Venice. But of course, there's communication that's going on. Yeah. Even through the ambassadors. Yeah. Even through the ambassadors. And final question, how does 
the legacy of the Republic of Venice as a as a espionage power or an intelligence power. How does this live on in the present day? If any of our listeners rock up to do the, you know, Florence, Rome, and, and Venice when they when they arrive in Venice, is there anything they can see or do that's going to remind them of this history? Yeah, absolutely. I would definitely recommend, and I'm not I'm not being sponsored in any way by the Doge's Palace, but if you are interested in Venetian intelligence and this centralized aspect of it. If you ever go to visit Venice, book to do the secret itineraries tour of the Doge's Palace, which they do in Italian, Sounds English awesome. or French. Yeah, which gives you free access to the whole Doge's Palace, but they take you to all the places that were used as the headquarters of, uh, of, of um, the Council of Ten that if you just pay the ticket to go and see the Doge's Palace, you will not be able to access. So I would definitely recommend that. Just to be a little bit more serious about the legacy, I do think that there is an educational value. Just trying to understand the analogy and affinity with that period and considering that some of the most significant, you know, challenges we face right now, such as, you know, disease, we just got over a global pandemic or migration or trade or climate change or cybersecurity. All these issues do not stop at the borders like any uh, early modern spies. They, they cross borders. So even reflecting how people dealt with these things in the past might help us make better political, social, economic decisions. It might not, but that, even that element of reflection, I think, is really important. Well, this has been incredible. Thanks so much. <laughs> it's been really great to chat. I feel like it's gone for another few hours, but I think we've done a pretty good job in the time that we've had available. So thanks so much for your time, Joanna. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about the Venetian Secret Service. Thank you for listening to this episode of SpyCast. Please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, in celebration of the 4th of July, we'll be re-releasing an episode we did last year on America's favourite pastime. Grab a dog and a cold beer or two and tune in to learn the surprising connections between intelligence and baseball. If you have feedback, you can reach us by email at spycast.spymuseum.org or on Twitter at intlspycast. If you go to our page at thecyberwire.com forward slash podcast forward slash spycast, you can find links to further resources, detailed show notes, and full transcripts. I'm your host, Andrew Hammond. My podcast content partner is Erin Dietrich. The rest of the team involved in the show is Mike Mincy, Memphis Vaughn III, Emily Coletta, Afu Anokwa, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, and Jen Iben. This show is brought to you from the home of the world's preeminent collection of intelligence and espionage-related artifacts, the International Spy Museum.